You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 6 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature. In our last lecture, we tried to consider a planetary system as it depends on the various spiritual beings of the three hierarchies, ranged, as it were, one above the other. We gained an idea of all that participates in forming a planet, and we saw how a planet receives its form, its enclosed form, as a result of the activity of the spirits of form. We saw further that the inner life, the inner mobility of the planet, is the result of the activity of the spirits of motion. What we may call the lowest consciousness of the planet, which can be compared with the consciousness present in the human astral body, we then assigned to the spirits of wisdom. And the impulse by which the planet, instead of remaining stationary, changes its place in space, we allotted to the spirits of will or the thrones. The organizing of the planet in such a way that it does not follow an isolated course in space, but moves in such a way that its impulses of motion are in harmony with the whole planetary system to which it belongs, the regulating of the individual movements of the planet in harmony with the whole system, we saw to be an activity of the cherubim. Finally, we ascribed to the seraphim what we may call the inner soul life of the planet, whereby the planet comes, as it were, into connection with the other heavenly bodies, as a person by means of speech enters into relation with other people. Thus we must see a sort of coherence in the planet, and in this what comes from the spirits of form is but a sort of kernel. On the other hand, every planet has something like a spiritual atmosphere. We might even say something like an aura, in which the spirits work who belong to those two higher hierarchies that are higher than the spirits of form. Now, however, if we want to understand all this rightly, we must make ourselves acquainted with yet other concepts than those I have just recalled to you, concepts to which we shall most easily attain if we begin with the beings of that hierarchy which stands, so to speak, nearest to humanity in the spiritual world, namely the beings of the third hierarchy. We have said that characteristic of the beings of the third hierarchy is the fact that what is perception in human beings is manifestation in them, and that what is inner life in human beings is being filled with the spirit in them. We already find this characteristic even in those beings who start immediately above humanity in the cosmic order, the angels or angeloi, namely that they are actually conscious of what they manifest from out of themselves. When they return to their inner being, they have nothing independent, nothing self-enclosed like the inner life of human beings. Rather, they then feel the forces and beings of the higher hierarchies above them, shining and springing forth in their inner being. In short, they feel themselves filled and inspired by the spirit and its beings immediately above them. Thus what we call our independent inner life really does not exist in them. If they wish to develop their own being, if they wish to feel, think, and will somewhat as a human being does, 
It is all immediately manifested externally, not like we humans who can shut up our thoughts and feelings within ourselves and allow our will impulses to remain unfulfilled. What lives as thought in these beings, insofar as they themselves bring forth these thoughts, is also, and simultaneously, revealed externally. If they do not wish to manifest externally, they have no other means of returning into their inner being but by once again filling themselves with the world above them. Thus the world above them dwells in the inner life of these beings, and when they live a life of their own, they project themselves externally, objectively. Thus, as we have seen, these beings can hide nothing within them as the product of their own thought and feeling, for whatever they bring about in their inner being must show itself externally. As we mentioned in one of the earlier lectures, these beings cannot lie. They cannot be untrue to their nature in such a way that their thoughts and feelings do not harmonize with the external world. They cannot have an idea within them that does not agree with the external world. For any ideas they have in their inner being are perceived by them in their manifestation. Let us just suppose that these beings had a desire to be untrue to their own nature. What would be the result? Well, in the beings we have designated as angels, archangels, and spirits of the age, or archai, we find throughout that everything that reveals itself to them, everything that they can perceive, is, so to speak, their own being. If they were to wish to be untrue, they would be obliged to develop something in their inner being that would not be consistent with their own nature. Every untruth would be a denial of their nature. That would mean nothing less than a deadening, a damping down of their own being. Now suppose that these beings had nevertheless the desire to experience something in their inner nature which they did not manifest externally. To do this, they would have to take on another nature. What I have just described as the denial of their own nature by beings of the third hierarchy, the taking on of another nature, did actually take place. It did occur in the course of the ages. We shall see as these lectures go on why this had to happen. But to begin with, we will confine our attention to the fact that it did happen. That as a matter of fact, among the beings of the third hierarchy, there were some possessed with, such, with this desire to have experiences in their inner nature which they need not manifest externally. That is, they had the wish to deny their own nature. What did this bring about in these beings? Something entered that the other beings, those of the third hierarchy which retained their own nature, cannot have. The beings of the third hierarchy can have no inner independence such as we have. If they wish to live in their inner being, they must immediately be filled with the spirit world above them. A certain number of the beings of the third hierarchy had the desire to develop something within their inner being that they would not immediately encounter in the external world as perception or as the revelation of their own being. Hence the necessity arose of denying their own nature and taking on another. To develop an inner life of their own, to attain inner independence, a number of beings of the third hierarchy had to give up their own nature, to deny it. They had, so to speak, to bring about in themselves the power not to manifest certain inner experiences externally. Now let us ask, what then 
were the reasons that moved these beings of the third hierarchy to develop such a desire within them. If we fix our attention upon the nature of the beings of the third hierarchy with their manifestation and their being filled with spirit, we see that these beings are in reality wholly at the service of the beings of the higher hierarchies. Angels have no life of their own. Their own life is manifestation, which is for the whole world. As soon as they do not manifest themselves, the life of the higher hierarchies radiates into their inner being. What induced a number of them to deny their nature was a feeling of power, of independence and freedom. At a certain time a number of beings of the third hierarchy had an impulse and urge to be dependent not merely upon the beings of the higher hierarchies but to develop within themselves an inner life of their own. The result of this was very far-reaching for the whole evolution of the planetary system to which we belong. For these beings, whom we may call the rebels of the third hierarchy, brought about nothing less than humanity's actual independence, making it possible for human beings to develop an independent life of their own, one that does not immediately manifest externally, but can be independent of external manifestation. I am intentionally using many words to describe this circumstance, because it is extremely important to grasp accurately what is in question here namely that an impulse arose in a number of the third hierarchy to develop an inner life of their own. Everything else was simply the result, the consequence of this impulse. What then was this result? It was in fact a terrible one, the betrayal of their own nature, that is, untruth, falsehood. You see, it is important that you should understand that the spirits of the third hierarchy who had this impulse did not do what they did for the sake of lying, but in order to develop an independent life of their own. But in so doing, they had to take the consequence. They had to become, quote, spirits of untruth, unquote, spirits who betrayed their own being. In other words, spirits of lies. It is as though someone were to take a journey on foot and meet with a wet day. Such a person must of necessity make the best of it and put up with getting wet, which they did not at all intend. In the same way the spirits of whom we are speaking had no intention of doing something in order to sink into untruth, their action arose from their wish to develop an inner life, an inner activity. But the result, the consequence, was that at the same time they became spirits of untruth. Now all the spiritual beings who by betraying their own nature arose in this way as a second category beside the spirits of the third hierarchy occultism calls luciferic spirits. The concept of the Luciferic spirits consists essentially in the fact that these beings wish to develop an inner life. Now the question is, what have these spirits to do to attain their goal? We have already seen what they had to develop as a result, and we shall now inquire further what they had to do in order to attain this goal of an inner independent life. What did these spirits wish to surmount? They wished to prevent themselves from being filled wholly with the substance of the higher hierarchies. They wished to be filled not only with the beings of the higher hierarchies, but with their own being. They could only accomplish this in the following way. Instead of filling themselves with the spirit of the higher hierarchies, and, as it were, leaving themselves open to looking freely outward toward the higher hierarchies, they cut themselves off and detached themselves from the higher hierarchies in order in this way 
to create substance of their own from the substance of the higher hierarchies. We can gain a correct idea of what is here in question if we think of the beings of the third hierarchy thus. We think of them represented symbolically, graphically, in such a way that they manifest their own being outwardly, as it were, as though it were their skin. Hence, each time they develop inner thought or feeling, a manifestation arises, like a shining forth of their own being. The moment they do not manifest themselves, they take up the light of the higher hierarchies flowing into them. They fill themselves with the spirit of the higher hierarchies and, as it were, open their whole being to them. Those luciferic spiritual beings of the third hierarchy of whom we have just spoken did not wish to be filled with the spirit, nor to be connected with the spiritual substance of the hierarchies. They wanted an independent spiritual life, therefore they cut themselves off, they detached themselves, so that the being of the higher hierarchies was above them. They cut the connection and detached themselves as independent beings, retaining the actual light in their inner being. Thus, as it were, they stole what should only have filled them, and then returned to the higher hierarchies. They stole it for themselves, filled their own inner being with it, and thereby developed an independent side of their nature. This concept can provide an explanation of events in the cosmos, without which we should be quite unable to grasp a stellar system or the constitution of the stars in general as we know them with our human physical consciousness. Without these concepts, one cannot possibly grasp the life of the stars, the life of the heavenly bodies. I have now tried to indicate to you how certain beings of the third hierarchy have become quite different beings, luciferic spirits. What took place in these beings of the third hierarchy cannot, of course, take place in the same way in the beings of the other hierarchies, but something similar takes place even with these. If we apply what takes place in the beings of the other hierarchies to a consideration of the spirits of form, it will give us an idea of how a planetary system is actually formed. At the conclusion of the last lecture it was said that what our vision first perceives in the planets proceeds from the spirits of form, but it is not quite accurate to represent it thus. If you consider the planets, Mars, Saturn, or Jupiter, for instance, they are outside in cosmic space as you see them with your physical eyes, or with the telescope you have the form revealed to you, not merely the spirits of form. Let us take, for example, the planet that for a long period of time has been reckoned as the outermost one in our system, Saturn. Uranus and Neptune were added later, as we shall see, but to begin with we will consider Saturn as the outermost. If we look at Saturn with physical vision, we find it outside in cosmic space, a sort of luminous globe, leaving the rings out of the question. To the occultist, who follows the spiritual events in the cosmos, this globe which we see out there is not what the occultist calls Saturn. To an occultist, Saturn is what fills the whole space that is bounded by the apparently elliptical orbit of Saturn. You know that astronomy describes an orbit of Saturn that it interprets as the path of Saturn round the Sun. We will not now discuss the accuracy of that statement, but if you take this accepted concept and here in the center imagine the Sun, S, and the outer circle as the orbit of Saturn, as astronomy conceives it, then everything that is within this orbit of Saturn, within the ellipse of Saturn, is Saturn to the occultist. 
For to an occultist, Saturn is not only what the external eye sees as the most external physical matter, not only what gleams in the heavens. For the occultist knows, as occult vision teaches, that as a matter of fact a sort of accumulation exists extending from the sun to the orbit of Saturn. So if we regard this orbit of Saturn with occult vision, we have a sort of etheric filling in of the whole space. We must think of what lies within this orbit as filled with matter, not however in the form of a globe, for we have to do with a very flattened ball, a lens. Looked at from the side, if we had the sun at some point, we would have to draw the Saturn of the occultist thus, as a much flattened ball. And at small a prime, we would have what is designated physical Saturn. We shall understand still better what is in question if we add an idea regarding Jupiter that we can gain in a similar way from occult science. External physical astronomy knows as Jupiter that shining body revolving round the sun as the second planet, the inner circle. To the occultist, that is not Jupiter. To the occultist, Jupiter is all that lies within the orbit of Jupiter. Looked at from the side, we would have to draw Jupiter in such a way that if we put wide sloping lines for Saturn, we put narrow sloping lines for Jupiter. What astronomy describes is only a body, which is, so to speak, on the outermost limits of the true occult Jupiter. But again, I might say, I'm, uh, this is the uh, reader speaking, that uh, again the picture is that Jupiter is from the Sun all the way out to the orbit of Jupiter, as I understand this. Sorry, I just don't, can't put the pictures here. <laughs> Back to the reading. What I am here saying is not a mere theoretical idea or fancy. The fact actually is that matter, not coarse physical matter, but fine etheric matter, fills the space within the orbit of Saturn in its lenticular, flattened, ball-like form as drawn here. It is just as much a fact that the second smaller space for Jupiter is filled with a different etheric substance that permeates the first, so that there is simple etheric substance only between the two orbits. Within, the two etheric substances permeate one another, mutually permeate one another. Now let us ask, what is the task of the spirits of form in this whole disposition? The spirit of form that forms the basis of Saturn sets a boundary and gives a form to the etheric substance we call in an occult sense, Saturn. Thus the outermost line in the formation of Saturn has been shaped by the spirit of Saturn, who is also a spirit of form. In the same way, the line of Jupiter was formed by the spirit of form allotted to Jupiter, the line of Mars by the spirit of Mars, who is a spirit of form. Now we may ask, where then does the spirit of form corresponding to Saturn, Jupiter or Mars actually dwell? If we can speak of a place in which these beings are, where is this place? In the ordinary sense of the word, however, we cannot so do. We can only say the spiritual beings, whom we call the spirits of form, work as forces within the etheric substance we have just mentioned, but they all have a common center, and this center is none other than the sun. Thus, if we seek for the actual place whence the spirits of form work, the spirits of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and so forth, as well as the spirit of form belonging to our earth, if we seek for the center, the starting point from which the spirits of form work, we find it in the sun. <clears throat> this means that the spirits of form corresponding to our planets comprise, as it were, a synod or council of spirits having its seat in the sun, 
and from there set boundaries to certain etheric substances, certain masses of ether, so that what we call, for instance, occult Saturn or occult Jupiter comes into being. Now, let us ask, how would it be if only the spirits of form were to work? The whole meaning of these observations can show you that the physical planets would not be in existence if only the spirits of form were to work. They would indeed have, as it were, their abode in the sun, where they form a sort of college, and we should have around us the planetary spheres as far as the orbit of Saturn. For concentric globes, flattened balls, so to speak, would exist as the occult planets, the most external of these flattened globes being of the finest etheric matter, the next somewhat denser, and the innermost of the densest etheric matter. Therefore the physical planets would not be in existence if only the spirits of form were to work. There would be globe-shaped accumulated masses bounded by what the physical astronomy today calls the orbits of the planets. But within the cosmos there are certain other spiritual beings corresponding to the spirits of form, but who, as it were, are rebels against those of their own class. Just as we find Luciferic spirits among the beings of the third hierarchy, who, in order to set up their own independent life, cut themselves off from the spiritual substance of the higher hierarchies, so we also find, within the category of the spirits of form, that some separated and would not go through the usual development of a spirit of form, but went through an evolution of their own. These oppose the normal spirits of form. They are in opposition to them. What then happens is as follows. Let us suppose that we had at point S the center point of the spiritual council of the spirits of form. The spirit of form working upon Saturn would call forth this etheric globe so that by the agency of this spirit a flattened globe would arise as in the following diagram. It's almost like something pushing into a cell. S is in the center and there's a big space around it and this foreign object is almost like trying to push into a cell and indenting it. Uh, I'm saying that, by the way, the reader. At an outermost point in this etheric globe, an opposition to the spirit of form working from the center of the sun, the rebel, the luciferic spirit of form, works. He works from without inward, in opposition. Thus we have the normal spirit of form working centrifugally outward from the sun, bringing about the occult Saturn which is then to be seen as a mighty etheric globe with its center point in the sun. At the periphery, working inward from cosmic space, is an abnormal spirit of form that has cut itself off from the normal evolution of the others. Then at this point, A, through the combined working of the forces working inward from the cosmic space and those working outward from the sun, there occurs an interning that finally becomes detached, and that is the physical planet Saturn. Thus we have to imagine that there are two forces working together where our physical eyes see the planet Saturn. One is the normal force of the spirit of form working outward from the sun. The other is the detached spirit of form that at a definite point works in opposition. This produces an interned structure. The ether is notched and this notch appears to the physical eyes the physical planet Saturn. The same occurs with the physical Jupiter and with the physical Mars. Hence, by this example, you see how in individual cases there actually arises what we call Maya, the great illusion. Where physical astronomy places a planet, there is in truth a combined working of two forces. The appearance of the physical planet 
arises only because a great and mighty etheric heavenly body is truly there, which, through the contact of these opposing forces, is dented in and has a notch formed in one place. For truly here we have actually to do with a turning in, and to be really accurate the matter must in the first place be described in this way. The spirits of form, working from the sun, extended the etheric substance a certain distance. The abnormal spirits of form, working in opposition, caved the substance in, so that in reality a hollow is made in the etheric substance. As regards the original etheric substance of the planet, where the physical eye believes it sees the planet, there is really nothing. The actual planet is where the physical eye sees nothing. That is the peculiarity of Maya. Where the physical planet is seen, there is a hollow. It may perhaps be said, asking about our earth, Quote, it is a very strange idea that where the physical planet is to be seen, there is a hollow. Unquote. According to what we have been saying, our earth too must be a sort of flattened ball having its central point in the sun. It must likewise be such a notch, such a sort of hollow on the outermost rim. Quote, a fine thing that, unquote, you can say, quote, we know quite well that we are walking on firm solid earth, unquote. Similarly, we might take for granted that where Saturn, Jupiter, or Mars is, there would naturally have to be solid filling, not hollow. Yet nevertheless, where you walk about on our earth, where in the sense of Maya perception you believe yourselves to be walking on solid firm ground, even then in reality you are walking about on a hollow. Our earth itself, insofar as it is an accumulation of matter, is a hollow in cosmic space, something bored into cosmic space. All physical matter comes into being through the meeting together of forces coming from the spirits of form. In the present case we have the meeting of the forces of the normal spirits of form and those of the abnormal spirits of form. These collide with one another, and in reality an indentation is produced, and consequently at this point a simultaneous breaking up of the form, but only of the form. The form breaks up, and this hollow space is bored. Now, broken spiritual form, crushed form, is in reality matter. In a physical sense, matter only exists when spiritual forms are broken up. Thus the planets out there are also broken up forms. In our planetary system, the spirits of form have helpers, as our previous considerations have made evident. The spirits of form themselves determine the boundaries, as we have described. But above the spirits of form stand the spirits of motion, above these the spirits of wisdom, above these the spirits of will, above them the cherubim and the seraphim. In all ranks of these spiritual beings there are those who can be likened to what we have described as Luciferic spirits. So wherever a planet is formed, on its outermost border, the spirits of form do not simply cooperate for what goes out from the sun, from the activities of the normal hierarchies who work from within outward, is always being opposed by the forces that come from the abnormal, the rebellious hierarchies. The cherubim and seraphim are those hierarchies that take part in the whole working of the forces as much as do the spirits of form. The cherubim and the seraphim have the task of bearing the power of light outward from the center point of the planetary system, the center of the sun. Inasmuch as the beings of the higher hierarchies, the seraphim and cherubim, become the bearers of light, they then have the same relation to the light as the forces of the spirits of form have to the etheric substance. 
Just as the forces of the normal spirits of form pass outward and encounter the forces of the abnormal spirits working in opposition, and by that means a notch is hollowed out, so also do the forces work which carry the light, filling the whole etheric space, meet with opposition. In opposition to them work the abnormal forces, with the result that the planet arrests the light. Just as the planet arrests the forces of the spirits of form, so does it also arrest the light and throw it back. Hence it appears as a reflector, as a thrower back of the light that the spirits we call the the cherubim and seraphim carry to it from the sun. Thus the planets have no light of their own, because they claim for themselves the force of the light that would be due to them as beings if they were to open themselves to the normal cherubim and seraphim, and because they veil themselves, cut themselves off from the whole. Hence every planet has a cut-off, separated light. It is incorrect to say that the planets only have light borrowed from the sun. Every planet has its own light, but it has cut it off, keeps it hidden within itself, and develops it for its own independent inner life of light. We shall see that each planet only shares this light with its own beings, belonging to the kingdoms of nature on the planet in question. The light to which they ought to open themselves, which they ought to take up from outside, is brought to them by the cherubim and seraphim from the sun. But to this light they close themselves and throw it back. Seen in cosmic space, they are stars that have no light of their own. Thus, as it were, a notch is formed with a light that flows in from the sun, and the planet throws itself against the light that flows in from the sun, arresting it and throwing it back. For occult vision, therefore, what we observe in the stellar world is absolutely different from what it appears to physical astronomy. What exists for the latter is nothing but a description of a maya, and only behind this maya does the truth lie. For the truth behind the material world is the spiritual world. In reality, the material world does not exist at all. What is called the material world is the interplay of the forces of the spiritual world. Today we have tried to describe how a planetary system such as ours actually arises. Very little is really known in the external world, in the world of physical science, of the origin of such a system. For through physical science, for though physical science imagines that a planetary system arises from a sort of massing of etheric substance, the first fundamental principle which ought to hold in all natural science is omitted. How often are children told at school, I do not know whether it is done here, but at least in Central Europe they are always told, that according to the Comte-Laplace system of the origin of the world, a mass of original matter was in rotation, and from this then the separate planets split off. There may be some little improvement in that today, but the principle is the same. And, in order that this may be quite clear and comprehensible, the children are shown, by means of a little experiment, how easily a planetary system can be formed. A large drop of some oily substance that floats on water is taken, and a circle ingeniously made in the line of the equator that is pierced through with a card. Then a needle is passed through from pole to pole, and one begins to turn. And behold, a pretty little planetary system arises out of the drop of oil. Quite in accord with the Kant-Laplace theory of the origin of the world, little drops separate off and rotate, while the big drop, the sun, remains in the center. 
What is more natural than to represent this to young people as a visible proof that this was also once enacted in the great cosmic spaces? But in so doing an important error is made, one which ought never to be made in natural science. There are certain conditions that ought never to be forgotten in making experiments. A scientist who forgets conditions without which no experiment can come about does not describe it accurately, even according to natural science. If you omit any essential condition, you are not describing it correctly according to natural science. The essential condition in the origin of this planetary system is that the teacher should stand there and make it revolve, otherwise the whole system could not originate. The Kant-Laplace theory would thus only be possible if those who believe in it could at the same time supply a gigantic teacher in cosmic space who would revolve the whole etheric mass. Perhaps not always, but often, people notice even small errors in logic. But capital errors, such errors as these that in their effects extend to the whole conception of the cosmos, are not remarked. Now, there is no great teacher outside making the axis of the world revolve, but there are the individual beings of the various hierarchies, who through the interplay of their forces bring about the distribution and regulation of the movements of the different heavenly bodies. This should be the answer to those who would believe that the ordinary materialistic theory as expressed in Kant-Laplace or in later hypotheses is sufficient to explain the cosmic system and that it is unnecessary to consider anything else, as do the occultists. To those people who from a materialistic standpoint object to this living interplay of the hierarchies, we must again reply. With the capital error in logic, that must be made by all materialistic cosmic hypotheses, we cannot reach our goal, for it is impossible to explain a planetary system without calling to one's aid what occult vision can actually see. It is certainly abundantly proved to occult vision that what must be described with the physical senses is indeed considered in its reality something quite different. What the eye sees is really nothing but the reflected light which is thrown back, because when the seraphim and cherubim carry the light of the sun into cosmic space, the luciferic cherubim and seraphim throw themselves against them, so to speak, and insert darkness into the substance of the sunlight, cutting off the light within and claiming for each of the planets a light of its own. These thoughts, now given out on the basis of occult observation and occult investigation, were first expounded in the post-Atlantean period in a sublime way by the great Zarathustra to his pupils. Everything that is rayed down by the beings of the higher hierarchies centered in the sun, rayed down from the sun into cosmic space in the way just described, all this was ascribed by Zarathustra to the spirit whom he named Ahura Mazdao, or Ormuzd. This spirit who carried the forces of his being from the center point of the sun into the periphery was everywhere opposed by the abnormal spirits of the different hierarchies, which in their totality formed the kingdom of Araman. We shall see, however, that with regard to the planetary system, we must separate the kingdom of Araman from that of Lucifer. We shall have more to say about this, but at the conclusion of this lecture, attention must be drawn to the fact that Zarathustra, in his own way, symbolically pointed out to his pupils this connection of the light of Ahura Mazdao, or Ormuzd, streaming out from the sun, and of the kingdom of Araman embedded within it. Zarathustra said, quote, What proceeds from the sun we represent symbolically by what the seraphim and cherubim carry, that is, by the light. 
what is hurled against the light in opposition by all the abnormal spirits of the higher hierarchies, the notch thus hollowed out, we represent by what is accepted as darkness. Parenthesis, that is, an individual light imprisoned within, manifesting externally as darkness. Parenthesis. This darkness, Zarathustra represented as a kingdom of Angramanyu, or Araman. Thus we see how this teaching that originated in Asia Minor and is in a sense given to us once more today was met first in the civilization of Zarathustra. What always fills us with such significant feelings with regard to the evolution of humanity is that we ourselves come upon certain things which even if they are not traditional and may not be observed in the Akasha Chronicle are furnished by the results of contemporary occult investigations and by what we can rediscover in the great teachings of antiquity. And only when we permeate ourselves with the truth to be found today in occult investigation, and when this same truth shines toward us from the old teachers and leaders of humanity, only then do we acquire a right relation to these leaders of humanity. Only then do they become living to us. Only then do we understand them rightly then the evolution of humanity reveals itself to us as a mighty discourse held by the spirits who now not only resound forth to one another in space, but also interpret one another in the successive periods of time, completing one another and leading the stream of civilization on into the future. The end of Lecture 6